This is Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Construction Law Today is a podcast about current topics in American construction law. Your host for Construction Law Today is Buzz Tarlow. Our podcast, Construction Law Today, began in July 2019 and is now in its second season. In our first year, we produced 14 episodes on a variety of what we hope were timely and interesting topics in the field of construction law. In our upcoming season, we hope to produce similar podcasts at the rate of about one new podcast per month. As always, we welcome your questions and comments. Please let us know what you think we can do to improve the podcast. The contact information for Construction Law Today is found at the end of this podcast. On behalf of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law, thanks for listening. Welcome to the podcast. The long-awaited federal infrastructure bill is now law. With this new funding, it's the expectation of many in the construction industry that new and significant federal projects will soon be underway. Therefore, it seemed an appropriate time for our podcast to turn its attention to some of the rules of the road of federal contracting. To do so, we're joined by two extraordinarily talented and experienced lawyers, Doug Oles and Howard Roth of the Oles Morrison Law Firm based in Seattle, Washington. Let's meet those lawyers now. Doug Oles, in addition to being a personal mentor to me in the development of my construction law practice, is both a former chair of the ABA's Forum on Construction Law and former president of the American College of Construction Lawyers. Doug, tell us how you got started as a construction lawyer and a little bit about your current law practice. Well, our firm believes itself to be one of the oldest construction law firms in the country. And one of the partners from 1950 to the 1980s was my father, Stuart Oles. And uh, while distributing hors d'oeuvres to the senior partners in my parents' garden, I had the opportunity to hear lots of tales of early federal construction projects, uh, going back to the dam building on the Columbia River. All sounded very interesting. So that's where I ended up today, still doing a lot of federal work, but also practicing in other areas. Howard, tell us how you began and a little bit about your career. I know that you served in the Army for uh, a long and distinguished career in the JAG Corps. Yes, I actually started out in Germany. I was the legal liaison for U.S. forces to the Attorney General for the uh, Rheinland-Pfalz. I had gone to a, a German university previously, so I, they put my, my German to use right away. And then I got exposure to construction there with the overseas Army Corps of Engineers and went on to be fortunate enough to become the commissioner of the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals in Washington, D.C., sort of as my second job out of Germany. And that's essentially where most government contractors litigate their claims. The other forum is the Court of Federal Claims, which for a variety of reasons you know, is not the preferred place to litigate. I then went into private practice for about eight years in the 90s and was recalled to active duty after 9-11 and uh, then served out my time and and joined Oles Morrison about uh, eight years ago. Howard, let's start at the beginning. 
talk a little bit about the federal acquisition regulations and uh, the supplements that get generated relating to that set of rules? Well, we're now talking about the government not just spending billions, but spending trillions. And the federal acquisition regulation system is the building blocks upon which a construction contractor can latch on to a lot of new opportunities that, that are going to be out there. And the government has tremendous strength in bargaining and has set up a complex system, but I, I can break it down for you. It's pretty easy to understand. Okay. Before we get to pulling the regulations a little bit apart, I'm interested, Doug, from the private side, from the contractor's perspective, what's your experience been with the use of the federal acquisition regs in practice? Well, first of all, if you want to impress your friends, you can refer to it as the federal acquisition regulation singular. It's, a, it's a, not a plural. But, uh, you know, what it is, it, it, and I think it's intimidating to a lot of people because it's quite a thick book. It's probably two inches thick of regulations, and it gets basically incorporated into contracts. But the, my experience with it is that if you actually spend a little time learning the terminology of it, that the system is a reasonably fair one and doesn't suffer from a lot of the sort of ad hoc goofiness that, that some small owners and local agencies come up with when they invent their own contracts. I concur with that. Howard, my experience over the years of working on federal projects from the contractor's perspective is, although the FAR is, is a big book, a lot of it has got some inherent logic. Why don't you break it down a little bit for our listeners? Um, I think there's subparts A through F in the regulation. Is that right? Yes, A through F. And within those A through F are parts 1 to 52 within the first 51 parts, you have the really the key definitions, changes clause, terminations, liquidated damages, how to submit a claim, uh, if you feel you've been treated unfairly, how to file a protest. A little bit, Howard, if you would, about the framework. For example, one of the things that I, I hear often from lawyers in private practice who are either looking at their first or second case with the federal government is there are a number of avenues procedurally for a claimant to head. Can you explain that? Yes. You have to first understand that the contracting officer in the government is king. And, you know, the king only permits suits as it deigns to be, you know, sued, as they say. And so the Contract Disputes Act of 1978 is the way that you would actually file a claim against the government but I find that it's, it's much better to first submit a request for equitable adjustment, typically citing the changes clause, even if another clause is applicable. We're going to get to equitable adjustment because it's a remarkably important aspect of dealing with federal claims. Doug, you just heard Howard speak of the contracting officer as king. From the contractor's perspective, just how all-knowing is this king? Well, for one thing, there's a little confusion because more than one person in a federal contract will probably have a title that includes the words contracting officer. There's the contracting officer who is the king, generally, with wide-ranging authority under FAR 1.602-1. But then there may also be an assisting contracting officer or a contracting officer's representative 
And those people have more limited authority. And uh, contractors working with the government need to make a point of ascertaining and clarifying the limitations on the authorities of these various officials at the beginning of a contract so they don't mistakenly rely on something that it turns out to be unauthorized. You and I were talking a little bit before this podcast about a case you had where it was very difficult to get in touch with the contracting officer. I've heard other lawyers uh, say that. Doug, how do, you, how do you work through that kind of communication issue when you're trying to cooperate with a contracting officer? Well, for one thing, normally only the prime contractor has a direct line of communication to the contracting officer. That, that can create frustration for subcontractors who want to find out, for example, information about whether or not their part of the work has been paid for. Now, there is a, a back channel that isn't used very often, but it's a perfectly legitimate one under uh, FAR 32.112, which allows subcontractors to contact the contracting officer directly with questions related to payment. But you know, it, the other problem is that even the, the prime contractor on a job uh, may have difficulty getting in touch with a contracting officer who very often is not on site, doesn't attend meetings regularly. So you have to kind of learn how the chain of command is going to be set up on the particular contract at issue and when an issue requires escalation to a higher level, uh, you have to request input from the contracting officer who, who may well uh, have sort of a sense of civic duty and be willing to step in and help resolve issues. The concept of equitable adjustment is an important one in federal law. And Howard, you were just starting to talk about it. Can you explain how that works in reality? Well, first, I have to say that requests for equitable adjustment is nowhere defined in the FAR. The word equitable adjustment is used, you know, quite a bit. And what it really comes down to is in government contracts litigation, there is no really breach of contract unless there isn't a FAR provision that governs your particular facts. And most of the time, the changes clause is going to be invoked for whatever the dispute is that you're having just because it allows you to get things like profit, which, say, a suspension of work clause dispute wouldn't. And so you'd style it, even if it's a suspension, as a constructive change. Doug, what was your perspective on that? Well, I had a client who recently had been waiting for almost two years to get a response to a request for equitable adjustment, which the client thought was fully documented and submitted to the government and couldn't understand uh, why they, uh, they were getting no response. And so they asked me, well, what's the deadline for getting an answer to an REA? And the answer is, there is none. Uh, if you want to impose a deadline on the contracting officer, you have to certify a claim and request a final contracting officer's decision. And until you do that, your request for equitable adjustment can float until the end of time. Howard, that comment by Doug reminded me of a case that I had that actually included that specific sequence of facts. From your perspective and from the government's side of things, equitable adjustment resolves most of the cases, many of the cases, or just a few. What does your experience tell you? Well, I think that equitable adjustment and REAs, the majority are resolved. And the reason that you want to start out with a request for equitable adjustment is it is not, the contracting officer does not consider it to be as adversarial because they don't have a deadline. 
you also can request your attorneys and consultant costs as a part of your REA. Once you style it as a claim under the Contract Disputes Act, then you no longer can, the client can no longer request the fees that go into putting that claim together. So that's, you know, sort of a, a basic point. But I think most REAs are resolved. In the situation of request for equitable adjustment, Howard, does the contracting officer have counsel available to them so that they can understand the nature of the legal arguments, even though it is in this uh, a little bit more amorphous area of equitable adjustment? The contracting officer is the king or queen. Most contracting officers are women for whatever reason, but, you know, so Queen Elizabeth, if you will, the FAR requires them to get counsel from attorneys and engineers and other functional experts. But those attorneys and those engineers have no authority to make a payment under the contract or actually change the contract. Doug, what's been your experience in terms of trying to make legal points or explain certain legal principles when you're dealing with an equitable adjustment type of uh, communication with a contracting officer? Well, first of all, most uh, requests for equitable adjustment are processed without direct participation by the attorneys. Now, attorneys who might be listening to this podcast would very likely get involved in helping to prepare packages that would be submitted to a contracting officer as a request for equitable adjustment. But the meetings and the sessions to negotiate those are, for the most part, carried on by contractor and agency representatives without lawyers there. Now, in terms of, you know, how familiar are the contracting officers with legal issues, you have to kind of look at things from the contracting officer's position a little bit. Those people are very unlikely to be the contracting officer only on one project. So they're splitting their time between different jobs and trying to put out little fires on each one that comes up. And they have some access to legal counsel in the agency. But, you know, there are times when those people are overstretched and particularly during COVID, they probably weren't even in their offices. And so, you know, there are limitations on resources from the government standpoint. And I would say that the government people try to be reasonable, but they often deal with insufficient resources. And uh, you, you have to hope that they don't go to too many seminars that teach them that contractors are evil and people trying to steal government money, because that can also poison the well in terms of negotiation. But I think for the most part, it's a pretty professional group of people on the government side who are struggling with limited resources. We'll be right back with more construction law today in just a moment. FTI Consulting is a leading global provider of project advisory, construction claims analysis, and expert witness services. As the construction industry navigates the short and long-term impact of the pandemic, FTI Consulting is committed to continuing our longtime support of the ABA Forum on Construction Law and its members. Meet our experts at fticonsulting.com. Welcome back. The subject of our podcast today is federal construction projects and the relating law. Our guests are Doug Oles and Howard Roth, the law firm of Oles Morrison, Seattle, Washington. Howard, 
During the break, we were talking a little bit about the difference between the so-called infrastructure bill and the numerous executive orders that President Biden has made over his first year in office affecting the construction contracts and the way they're utilized by the federal government. Can you talk about those and, and in particular separate out which is legislative and which is part of the executive power of the presidency? Well, the actual appropriation of funds, of course, for the different subsets of, of projects, like you know, a lot of the COVID money is being used for school construction, which um, many contractors are excited about. And the executive orders where the president comes up with his own agenda and then makes it essentially a part of your contract. And that, I think, is, you know, the FAR provisions I said are in your contract. Well, what what they'll do is they'll say, here, you also must comply with all these executive orders. And um, President Biden has issued more executive orders in his first year um, than any president. And so... A lot of it is in what we call socioeconomic, like labor issues. Well, give me an example. We were talking about the breadth of these executive orders. Give me an example of the kinds of areas that they impact. Well, I mean, the one that everyone's talking about, and maybe by the they'll still be talking, I'm sure, when this is aired, is COVID. And the president has issued an executive order It's called Ensuring Adequate COVID Safety Protocols for Federal Contractors. And basically, it said that all contractors and all contractor employees, I mean, even the lawyer who's sitting in in the back office headquarters, has to have a COVID vaccination by November 8th. Of course, what happened was the president's advisors realized that that would lead to a lot of people being fired at Christmas time. And so last week, that was now changed to you have to get your um, vaccination by January 4th, but no vaccination and you can be defaulted on the contract. And Doug, as a quick aside, I think you were telling me that there's been some job actions on the ferry system surrounding Seattle because of the unwillingness of workers to abide either by federal or state law regarding vaccination. How's that situation going? Yeah, Washington state has the largest ferry system in the country. And inspired by insistence that everybody should be vaccinated, the governor of Washington implemented a rule which also set a deadline for uh, ferry employees to get vaccinated. They resisted first with wildcat strikes. And then when uh, they didn't get their way, the deadline passed and the governor actually fired over 120 of the uh, workers on the ferry system, whereupon the ferry system basically tore up the reservation system and its existing schedule and said, uh, now everybody, you just take get on a ferry whenever you can. So, I mean, that's just kind of a small example of things that, that are probably happening in different corners of the country uh, as there is a push and pull between these regulations and those who challenge them. Howard, let's move from some of the current issues like COVID and go back to some of the traditional questions that the FAR raises. One that I've been exposed to, and I know a lot of lawyers have, are the change site condition provisions of the FAR. First, explain a little bit about change site condition, and then talk about, if you will, the important distinction between the various types of change site conditions. Well, the the thing that trips contractors up is a lot of times the notification requirements under the FAR. But the two types are 
and Doug is is really the the expert here, but are where a type one is where you encounter something that's different than what a reasonable contractor would expect from looking at the plans and specifications. And a type two is one that just, you know, shouldn't be there, period. I mean, Doug, I, I, we were, we were met, you were mentioning that. Do you want to weigh in at all? Yeah, sure. Type one differing site conditions are pretty common. It just means that uh, an owner agency puts out, for example, a geotechnical report that indicates certain conditions. Contractor encounters something materially different from those conditions and then claims an added cost or added time as a result. A type two differing site condition means that the contractor has encountered something so extraordinary that nobody would ever expect it to be present in the environment where it is. And actually very few construction lawyers have ever had a successful type two differing site condition because they just don't come up very often. I can give you one though. Years, years ago when the US government was building radar stations out in the Aleutian Islands, in order to keep eyes on Siberia. Apparently nothing ever happened, but they had eyes. And while they were creating gravel pads out there, they were trying to do blasting to create the gravel. And the, strangely, every time they blasted the rock, putting large amounts of dynamite, nothing would happen. And, and the rock wouldn't break up the way it was supposed to. And it turned out the reason was because there are so many earthquakes in the Aleutian Islands that over the centuries, dust from the surface and dirt had filtered down into the natural cracks between the rocks and they had created buffers. So you could blow as much dynamite up as you wanted to and it still wouldn't take the rock out because it was internally buffered. So I argue that was a type two different site condition and government agreed with, but you won't get those every day. Doug, as a follow-up to the structure of these change site condition provisions, would you talk a little bit about how private contracting at least to my understanding, has largely adopted these standards as set forth in the FAR about change site conditions. Right. It begins with the federal government. And then what happened is that the Federal Highway Administration required uh, state highway administrations that are awarding contracts with federal money to use certain standard provisions. And they required them to use different site condition clauses so that people could bid their contracts knowing that they would get paid if they encounter these unexpected conditions. And in that way, I think they became quite commonplace around the country so that private owners, if they wanted to attract bids from competent contractors, really had to include those clauses because the contractors had become so used to seeing them both in federal contracts and also in a lot of state and local contracts. Howard, I want to talk a little bit about the concept of termination for convenience, which is an important part of dealing with the government. You were telling me before of some examples that you're currently working on regarding the uh, wall on the border between the United States and Mexico. Well, that, you know, you had President Trump um, having the the contractors work almost 24-7, producing border panels under a presidential national emergency on the border. And so money from the Department of Defense that would be used for weapon systems was going into building the border. And then immediately, President Biden came in and issued his own presidential proclamation, even higher up than in an executive order, that required all construction on the border to stop. Can I interrupt you just for a minute, Howard? What's the difference between a proclamation and executive order? I I would have thought a proclamation is just a formal announcement. Well, 
an executive order actually has to have some type of sort of vetting, if you will. The proclamation, he just, as soon as he came in, he said, all construction on the border wall will stop. And anybody in the government has to follow that proclamation. And so all the contracting officers had to do that. And what they did was they suspended construction. So everybody is, is suspended and, and the suspension of work clause under the FAR isn't the friendliest because you do not get your profit on the costs, which sort of goes back to your differing site condition a little bit. Most government contract practitioners who litigate at the boards of contract appeals will always try to style their differing site condition or their suspension as a constructive change in the alternative. And so there's a lot of, of sort of crazy law out there where it really is a differing site condition case, but it's been um, decided as a constructive change. And it's especially helpful with suspension because you can, again, by saying, well, it was a constructive suspension, but really you can pay me under the changes clause, you get your profit. Let's look a little bit at the area that you practice a lot, and that's design build. Talk first, if you will, a little bit about how design build fits into the federal contracting scheme? Well, up through the 1960s, 70s, maybe 80s, the standard method of advertising public contracts was as design, bid, build. It's called meaning that the the government agency would design a complete project, then put the complete design out for bids, and that's what would get built. But over the years, there has been a move toward increasing use of design, build contracting, where the same entity or at least the same joint venture of entities, provides both the design and the construction. It's led to a lot of um, interesting and sometimes difficult transitions because it really requires a different mindset among the contractors. And it also moves the government away from a pure sealed bid comparison based on dollars only. And it moves the government into trying to compare competing bids that offer different concepts and different designs. Uh, to be evaluated against each other. Howard, have you had an opportunity in your practice to see how the the government and the contracting community are adapting to the design-build concept? Uh, When I was in the government, I I saw quite a bit. And I would say that the government has a hard time with the concept because they don't want to let go. And so in private practice with Doug, I've worked with Doug on some cases in which Really, it came down to trying to convince the government that it really was a design-build contract. I want to ask you both, as we get to the end of our episode today, about the kind of advice that you would give to a lawyer looking at a significant federal claim. Howard, based on your years of experience working on the government side, what would you tell a practitioner out there with regard to just generally handling, preparation, and prosecution of their claim? I think that the biggest mistake and the biggest thing that practitioners don't know about who don't do this is that the government is going to come back and attack whether or not you actually submitted a claim. And it seems to be so obvious to normal construction lawyers, well, of course it's a claim. There's differing site condition. There was this, but the the government is going to hone in on whether or not the substance of your legal basis was presented to the government as a part of your claim. If it wasn't, then they'll argue five years later that you hadn't submitted a claim on that basis. Or they'll say that you didn't submit a sum certain. Again, 
five, six years later, um, I have seen instances where a judge, sua sponte, has raised jurisdiction again when I, I'm mentioning the five and six years because that's the statute of limitations after the limitations has passed. You need to request a some certain as a matter of right, and you need to request a contracting officer's decision. If you don't do that, then you know the, the judges at the boards will decide how many angels can dance on the head of the pin as to whether or not you submitted a claim. So none of this has anything to do with the merits. So that's what I would say. Make sure you got a claim. That sounds a lot like um, the notice games that are played in the private contracting world. Doug, in representing contractors in claims with the federal government, what would you tell practitioners out there as a general matter that they need to be aware of? I, I think it's important to realize that there are a series of places along the road where choices have to be made. And the lawyer needs to be aware of those choices so as to advise his or her client which choice, which path to take. Uh, well, the first one might be, when do you want to uh, settle part of an issue and reserve the other part? Because you have to be careful if you sign a change order for one thing, that you're not giving away the right to compensation for some impact of that change that doesn't become known until later in the project. The next choice is that you're going to have to decide if you want to certify a claim and demand a decision by the contracting officer. As Howard explained, and before you do that, you have a certain right to collect attorney's fees and consulting costs of putting your claim together. After you do that, you start to collect interest at an extremely low rate, but you, but you also lose the ability to claim uh, the cost of claim preparation. And then once you make a claim and ask for a contracting officer's decision, if you don't like the decision that you get, you have to decide if you want to appeal to an agency board of contract appeals or whether you want to appeal to the, the Court of Federal Claims, which is two different sets of lawyers you're going to have on the other side and a lot of other considerations. So I guess this is sort of like an advertisement. Uh, there's a lot more we could say today about some of these issues. And we'll be happy to do so in some future <laughs> um, one of these uh, interviews. But it, it's, it's not hugely complicated, but you do have to be aware of the process, know where you are, and then uh, give proper advice to which choice to make at each point. Howard, I want to give you the last word on one particular idea, and that is how much is this new infrastructure law and funding going to change the world of federal construction? I don't think it's going to change the basic world. The government goes by a cookbook. They have SOPs they've been using since the 50s. And so if you just keep your eye on the ball with, you know, basic basketball, if you will, hands up, box out, you'll do just fine. It's people who haven't been or don't know those fundamentals who will have difficulties. Our guests today have been Doug Oles and Howard Roth, law firm of Oles Morrison in Seattle, Washington. Thank you both so much. You have been listening to Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. All rights relating to this podcast are owned and controlled by the American Bar Association. No reproduction or reuse of this podcast is permissible without the expressed written consent of the American Bar Association. For more information about Construction Law Today, or if you have any questions or comments, you may contact our host, Buzz Tarlow, jtarlow at lawmt.com. Our podcast is produced with the assistance of Peak Recording Studios in Bozeman, Montana. Thank you for listening and look for our next edition of Construction Law Today.